let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation, a series of reflections that has had us talking about a great number of things, right? To the least of which, how the book of Revelation is a book that has us going to the Mass, uh, and the book of Revelation, consequently, is a book that really has been about our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Certainly, there are many other things going on, but we have to appreciate the interior dynamic, if you will, of this book. And by that, I mean the way in which this book encourages us to go deeper in the interior life. And talking about that, as we've gotten to some elements in regards to uh, the beast, the Antichrist, I thought we could kickstart this evening's program with a reflection on hell, if you will, right? (laughs) Given everything we've been talking about, I thought we should do that. And we will do so by going to the Catechism. Now, Peter Williamson, in his commentary on the book Revelation, does just that. So let us turn to uh, the Catechism, and in particular, paragraphs 1033, 1036, and 1037. Certainly, the reality of hell and the consequent urgency of repentance has been a consistent teaching of the church. And why? To give glory to God, but also for salvation. So this is what paragraph 1033 has to say. To die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting God's merciful love means remaining separated from Him forever by our own free choice. Okay, remember what we talked about yesterday as it relates to love itself and how ultimately you must have freedom if you're going to have that most authentic expression of love, because you can never impose love, but propose it. So love never comes from without, but from within. If love is to be what it is intended to be, then it must come from the interior dimension. It must come from the heart. And when we choose against God, then we choose hell. What does the Catechism say? This state that is, this state of remaining permanently separated from God, is the state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed, which is called hell. Now, take note in this paragraph the importance of that phrase, God's merciful love. To die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting God's merciful love means remaining separated from Him forever by our own free choice. Brothers and sisters, what a tragedy it is to not choose God's merciful love. Remember what I have said before, that there's nothing so bad that we can do that is actually going to have God loving us less. In point of fact, God is attracted to brokenness, and He desires a humble heart. He desires a repentant heart. He desires a heart willing to change, because in the bigger picture, my friends, He knows more than we can ever imagine what that state of definitive exclusion is all about. Now, paragraph 1036. 
the affirmation of sacred scripture and the teachings of the church on the subject of hell are a call to the responsibility incumbent upon man to make use of his freedom in view of his eternal destiny. They are at the same time an urgent call to conversion. So we have this responsibility (laughs) in the light of sacred scripture, in the light of what God has revealed to us and what God has passed down to us through the years. And consequently, we have this urgent call to repent, to seek to convert more closely to God. Remember, a couple of days ago, we were talking about the importance of choosing for God or against God. And ultimately, every choice we make is either a choice that has us drawing closer to God or a choice that is drawing us away from God. So we must make our choices in the light of our eternal destiny. And in the words of the great crusader from Indiana Jones, choose wisely. One of the graces that comes from the tragedy of all the death that surrounds us is that we are reminded of death itself. And so St. Augustine would say in this light, death is one of those most uh, far-reaching graces because in the end, it lends itself to a more critical reflection about how we ought to live in light of our eternal destiny. So my dear friends, we have a responsibility to respond to what God has freely given us, this grace we have received in baptism, and to not get caught up in this pole of materialism that seeks to constantly drown out God's voice with more noise, huh? So let us draw back ourselves and appreciate what is going on in this particular paragraph, that we do have a responsibility. And every act, every free choice we make is one that should lend itself to deeper conversion, that gradual transformation in Christ. Okay, how about paragraph 1037? In the Eucharistic liturgy and in the daily prayers of the faithful, the church implores, here we have it again, the phrase, the mercy of God or God's merciful love, who does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Second Peter 3, 9. So there you have it, some uh, paragraphs that point towards not only what hell is, this definitive exclusion from communion to God, but in the light of that, this call we have, this responsibility we have to respond to God's grace. And in so doing, for ourselves, yes, but also for others, and how we are called to make what we are talking about now the very subject matter in our preaching evangelization. You know, John's visionary depiction of the church's proclamation of the gospel contains a warning of judgment, does it not? This is again what we talked about the other day. And unfortunately, it is missing from many contemporary proclamations of the gospel. Now, why is this the case? Well, possibly a reaction to an overemphasis on the fear of judgment. Many Catholics since Vatican II have tended to present only Jesus's love and grace and to pass over Uh, in many cases, human accountability, human responsibility to God, and the grave consequences of what? But disobedience. Remember what the word obedience means, obadire, to listen. Disobedience is failure to listen, huh? To not listen. To some degree, this message that is void of repentance 
is due to a misunderstanding of what the Second Vatican Council said about the possibility of salvation apart from explicit faith in Christ. This misunderstanding is the result that many Catholics have come to regard the gospel as optional, spiritually enriching, but not necessary for salvation. Immediately following the nuanced discussion of the possibility of salvation for those who have not heard the gospel, that all-important document from Vatican II, Lumen Gentium, paragraph 16, says this, But very often, deceived by the evil one, men have become vain in their reasonings, have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and served the world rather than the Creator. Or else, living and dying in this world without God, they are exposed to ultimate despair. Hence, to procure the glory of God and the salvation of all these, the church, mindful of the Lord's command, preach the gospel to every creature, takes zealous care to foster the missions. In other words, my friends, while God may make it possible for some people who have not heard the gospel to be saved, this can never be presumed. This does not mean that the church's message should primarily be fire and brimstone. The gospel's emphasis is always God's grace and the love of Christ. Besides being true, quite simply, it is generally more effective. Nevertheless, to explain human accountability to God for our conduct and the certainty of future judgment is nothing less than what? But telling the truth. Evangelization must be a matter not of preaching either grace or judgment, but always mindful of preaching both. Advanced knowledge of impending judgment is actually a mercy. A mercy if there is opportunity to avoid a negative outcome. I like this example that uh, <laughs> Peter Williamson gives. Students benefit from knowing the topics they must master for the final exam. Taxpayers are more careful if they know in advance that their tax return will be audited. You see, my friends, it's knowing that end subject matter that helps us better live in the present moment. Peter Williamson would have us consider further. A medical doctor who failed to inform at-risk patients of the potentially fatal consequences of smoking, poor diet, or unsafe sexual practices could be guilty of what? But malpractice. You see, my friends, pastors and evangelists would do well to imitate the sober, factual way physicians communicate such information, even if sometimes more impassioned warnings about eternal consequences are necessary. Now, something should be said here about the cardinal virtue of temperance, because I do think it is maybe the most underestimated virtue out there, that virtue that speaks to self-mastery, that virtue which speaks to uh, one who lives a balanced life, one who is spiritually poised, one who doesn't get caught up in the emotion of a particular situation, one who always works with the end in mind. If our preaching message is imbued with the cardinal virtue of temperance, it will reach much farther, much wider. All right, that being said, <laughs> let us get back into the book of Revelation, chapter 14, verses 14 to 16. Then I looked, and lo, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle 
in his hand. We'll talk about that. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat upon the cloud, put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat upon the cloud swung his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, in keeping with John's interpretation of Christ as the Son of Man from Daniel, the figure who comes on a cloud is, of course, Christ. His golden crown is a symbol of his kingship over the earth. And those who have followed the beast have therefore rejected the true king. And as these verses remind us, they are ripe for judgment. And how about this sickle? Well, the sickle in our Lord's hand is a tool used for harvesting. Christ himself described his second coming in harvest terminology in Matthew 13, where the righteous are separated from the wicked as wheat from weeds. Jesus goes on to explain that the wicked, the weeds, shall be burned up. Certainly this picture resembles John's vision concerning the fate of Jerusalem, which is also, as Revelation chapter 17, verse 16 will remind us, burned with fire. Judgment as a harvest also evokes another prophecy, the prophecy of Joel, chapter 3, verse 13, where God judges the nations who threaten Jerusalem. Ironically, Judgment is now coming upon the same earthly city, once protected by God because it has begun persecuting those who belong to the new Jerusalem of heaven, the new Christian church. This passage in Joel also resonates with John's vision, since it also portrays judgment as the Lord's treading on the wine presses. Now, what more could be said about that? Well, let us go to chapter 14, verses 17 to 20. And another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Then another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has power over fire, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered the vintage of the earth and threw into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress, as high as a horse's bridle, for 1,600 stadia. Mm. So what do we have here, my friends, but Christ's judgment, the casting of his sickle, if you will, is carried out by the angels who follow his actions. In many ways, this is much like the angel at the beginning of chapter 10, who enacted what the lamb did in chapter 5. Furthermore, the fact that this angel comes with fire and from the altar and from the altar links this judgment with that brought by the angel of chapter 8, verse 5, who was also associated with the altar and who also set the earth on fire. Now, John describes the judgment of Jerusalem as the destruction of a winepress or vineyard just as Isaiah chapter 5 did and Lamentations chapter 115 did. The description of blood flowing as high as a horse's bridle quite honestly paints a horrific picture of a massive slaughter. Once again, we turn to Josephus. It's been a while since we considered the great first century Jewish historian Josephus. 
Josephus's account of the Jewish war has an amazing correspondence with John's prophecy as he recounts the sheer carnage of the war. Listen to Josephus. For the ground did nowhere appear visible for the dead bodies that lay on it. But the soldiers went over heaps of these bodies as they ran upon such as fled from them. Wow. Indeed, my friends, the measurement of the wine press as 1,600 stadia corresponds to the dimensions of the land of Israel. Powerful stuff. Okay, let us turn our attention now to chapter 15, and in particular, chapter 15, verses 1 to 4, and those who stood beside the sea of glass. Then I saw another portent in heaven, great and wonderful, seven angels with seven plagues. There again, you have the number seven, right? Which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is ended. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the lambs, saying, Great and wonderful are their deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, O King of the ages. Who shall not fear and glorify thy name, O Lord? For thou alone art holy. All nations shall come and worship thee, for thy judgments have been revealed. So what you have here, my friends, in chapter 15 is an ushering in of the sequence of the last seven plagues. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 14, verses 2 to 3, we saw new Exodus imagery in the new song sung, right? Here, that theme is picked up, and we, we should say in greater detail. As in chapter 5, the saints sing a new song beside the sea of glass, just as Moses sang a song with Israel on the other side of the what? Red Sea, right? If you were to go to Exodus 15, this is what you will find. Here, the link is made more explicit, however, by the reference to the song of Moses, the words of the new song are even taken from Moses' song. If you were to go to Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, what do you read? Who is like thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, terrible in glorious deeds, doing wonders? What a beautiful passage that is. Who is like thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness? That his holiness is captivating and we worship that holiness. We praise that holiness. We give due honor to that holiness. Now, the Old Testament, moreover, compares the victory at the Red Sea to God's crushing the great sea monster, does it not? It is therefore appropriate for a new song of the sea to be sung in Revelation 15 once the dragon and the beast of the sea are defeated. Again, once you read the new in light of the old and the old in light of the new, it all begins to make sense, does it not? It always fascinates me, the continuity of the old and new when you start working in the tall grass. You know, I know I have a number of people come up to me and say, you know, Joe, there's so much discontinuity. There are so many contradictions. Well, from a distance, maybe, but once you start to sink yourself deeper into sacred scripture, what you find is that beautiful, harmonious reality. Okay. Chapter 15, verses 5 to 8. 
After this, I looked, and the temple of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues, robed in pure bright linen, and their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were ended. Ooh, powerful stuff. And in verse 5, what we have essentially is the continuation of this new exodus theme, huh? The term, the tent of witness, evokes the tabernacle in which Israel worshipped during their wilderness journey. Likewise, the seven plagues evoke the plagues sent on Egypt in the exodus something I know we explored earlier on. Now, the word for bowls here may also be translated as cups. And furthermore, since the Greek word used here specifically describes a liturgical vessel, one may even translate the word as chalice. Huh? Chalice. This specific liturgical element is highlighted further once we read that the angels come out of the temple, right? It is also underscored in the way their white clothes and golden girdles mirror John's description of Christ as the high priest in the opening chapter of this book. Here then, once again, my friends, we are made to see how the liturgy of heaven is what sets into motion the events on earth. If we put this into our everyday context, that we become who we are called to be in the light of the Mass— that as we proceed from the liturgy into the world, we are setting into motion the very purpose and will of God. Do you see how understanding this book as a book that corresponds to the liturgy is so important, especially as it relates to doing God's will here on earth? All right, what more could be said? Well, the chalice judgments, as we will call them, and as Michael Barber does in his work coming soon, may also be connected with the angel's announcement in chapter 14, verse 10. He shall drink the wine of God's wrath, poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. It may also be connected with the golden bowl or chalice of the saints' prayers that we read about in chapter 8, verse 3, which we understood in terms of the saints' petition for vengeance. Huh? So the chalice judgments represent the answers to their prayers. Back in Revelation chapter 6, they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of those to be slain had been realized. So with that number, that number 144,000 now completed and standing safely on Mount Zion, the final judgment comes. And we should add that the vision also carries themes from Isaiah chapter 6. There Isaiah has a vision of the throne room of God wherein the angels come forth, as smoke fills the temple. Upon witnessing this, what happens in the narrative with the prophet Isaiah? Well, Isaiah is commissioned to pronounce a coming judgment on the people of Jerusalem. You see, my friends, John also stands in the throne room where he will see the chalices of wrath poured out on the once holy city. And with these, the final destruction will come. All right, how might we apply our treatment of the last three chapters. 
as Michael Barber applies the last three chapters. I thought he has a pretty important reflection for us to consider here. He says that, you know, it would be nice to read that anyone who tries to persecute Christians will immediately be zapped by God. Indeed, many well-meaning believers think in these terms, and if you think this is untrue, well, ask those people around you. Maybe they think that the wrong candidate won't be elected. The good one will necessarily win since he has God on his side. They think that a professional athlete who leads an immoral life will immediately suffer defeats and failure. In short, they think that good things will always happen to good people and that bad things will always happen to bad people. And what do we learn, if anything, from the cross? But that God in the cross absolutely shatters this image. I mean, in chapters 13 to 15, God allows Christians to be killed by the beast, right? They suffer and die with no recognizable deliverance. Does this mean that goodness has been defeated? No. It's simply, as Michael Barber puts it, and I love this, redefines victory. That actual victory is found not in earthly vindication, but only by entering into God's triune life in heaven. That life of love. Love which constitutes the very life of heaven. By learning to offer their lives, the saints are truly victorious. Perhaps not in the eyes of the passing world per se, No, their victory is eternal, albeit very real. So we must recognize that this world is not meant to be our home. Does this not bring us back to our initial treatment of hell and our responsibility to live with the end in mind, to live with our eternal destiny in mind? It is so tempting to evaluate our successes by this world's standards, And certainly this is especially true when worldly goods are set up as counterfeits for heavenly ones. You see, my friends, this is a strategy of the beast, and we must overcome this strategy. Our successes should only be measured by God and God alone. And the only way you're going to know that is, again, if you sink yourself deeper into sacred scripture, the lives of the saints, and the many lessons to be gained in the light of the deposit of faith. Okay, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do give you special thanks and praise for this gift of time that we have together, the gift to reflect into the beauty and scope of these staggering verses that we've been going through in chapters 13, 14, and 15. We pray that these words may enrich our lives and in so doing, enrich all those around us. Amen. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.